And we're so glad you could be here. And uh, we're continuing in our uh, creation study, creation, fact, not theory. And so we're going to continue there. I'm going to uh, ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 today. We're going to get kicked off there. A great passage. I was reading, uh, uh, just like you do, I'm sure, in your morning or evening devotion, whichever it is you do, or afternoon devotion, whatever that special time is that you get with God on a regular daily basis. I was reading in my time, I was in the book of Nehemiah uh, this past week, uh, or this, this week, and I read this verse, and I thought to myself, uh, throughout scattered throughout the Bible are, are verses that continue to reaffirm uh, God is our creator. And this is one of those verses, and I thought it was so good, I thought I'd throw it in here and start the message off today uh, by reading that passage. Nehemiah chapter 9, <clears throat> beginning in verse 6. Can't find it, can you? <laughs> it's tucked away in there. You've got to kind of dig it out. All right, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Bible says, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. Thou preservest them all. The host of heaven worshipeth thee. Isn't that a great verse? That thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. Thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. That's a great passage. We're talking about creation, and again, our our series is Creation, Fact, Not Theory. Today, I want to begin talking about how science points toward God. How science points toward God. We live in a very technological culture and age where many people believe that science triumphs, or should I say trumps, all other forms of knowledge. It's just the way it is. In his book, Christianity and the Nature of Science, J.P. Moreland speaks of a a conversation that he had with a particular engineer who was completing his doctorate degree in physics. This particular gentleman made the statement that only science is rational. Only science achieves truth. Everything else is mere belief and opinion. Amazing, isn't it? Harvard geneticist Richard Lewinton claimed science is, quote, the only begetter of truth. Now, as believers, we're neither blinded by such biases, nor are we ignorant to believe such statements. The Bible says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Bible also says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Even though we believe that there's a Bible and we believe there's a Savior who is truth, we still can't dismiss the validity or the benefit of science. However, science must be tempered with common sense. And most importantly, it needs to be tempered with the Word of God. And to somehow try and explain the universe and the world without ultimately landing or ending up on the doorstep of God is simply inconceivable. And it will truly find itself futile in the end. Some scientists 
have finally come to the conclusion that science itself points to God. They continue to review the research, they continue to pour over the data, and they come to a conclusion that God is not only a possible answer, but even a probable one. Some have conceded God as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer said, I believe that the testimony of science supports theism. While there will always be points of tension or unresolved conflict, the major developments in science in the past five decades have been running in a strongly theistic direction. Note this last statement that he makes. He says, science done right points toward God. Isn't that great? I like that. I think that's good stuff. This morning, I want to consider five ways that science points toward God. Five ways. And so we're going to take a few moments this morning, and we're going to look at that and see what we can't learn today. And we'll trust the Lord to drive home these truths. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity and this, just this chance that we have to gather together in this place to, Father, consider your word. And, Father, even to review some of these thoughts concerning science. Lord, uh, there's no doubt that science and the Word of God can uh, cohabitate together. The key is whether or not a person is willing to acknowledge your reality or not. Today, Father, in this place, we gather together, many of us as believers, believing that Jesus Christ is God in flesh and that He died on Calvary to pay for our sin. But Lord, there are a number of people in the world that have yet to accept that reality, that truth. Lord, we want to be better equipped. We want to be prepared to face this world with confidence. Help us, Lord, to be renewed in our faith, to be strengthened in our faith. May we take some of these truths and some of these findings and some of these ideas and thoughts and may they just truly bolster our opinion of you as well as our faith in you. Now fill me with your spirit. Let me be your mouthpiece. Stand in my shoes. And Lord, allow me, Father, just to say those things which will please you most. Bless your people. Anoint every listening ear, and may we hear with spiritual ears and drive home these truths that we'd not only hear them with our ears, but, Father, we would apply them in our hearts and our lives. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, we talk and we're going to talk about how science points toward God. I want to begin by number one saying that there's a definite beginning to the universe. A definite beginning to the universe points toward God. The Big Bang Theory and the theory of general relativity points to a definite beginning of the universe. Now again, if you would look at what science believes, they believe that 16 billion years ago there was a Big Bang. And that's when time began, so to speak. But the question is, what was before that? I mean, the fact that most scientists now believe that energy, matter, space, and time had a beginning is profoundly anti-materialistic. It takes away from that theory of evolution. If, it's one thing to speak of the Big Bang and the origin of life, but to somehow explain how matter and energy, time, and space came into existence... Well, that just simply leaves anyone with any common sense speechless. Where did energy come from? Where did time come from? 
Where did space come from? Where did matter come from? To stop at a point in the past that includes these elements is to dismiss the most nagging question of all. Where did they come from? Or how did it all begin? The fact is that you can't explain the origin of matter, energy, time without God. You can't do it. You can twist the numbers, you can bend the facts, but in the end, you're going to end up with more questions than you began with. Nobel Prize winner Arno Penzias said about the Big Bang, quote, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the first five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Isn't that amazing? Well, guess what? We believe the same thing. Give us the five books, first five books of the Bible, and we'll tell you how everything began. We'll tell you how everything's going to end if you'll give us revelation. So we see number one, we first of all note a definite beginning to the universe. Number two, anthropic fine-tuning. Trust me, I did not create that word. That's not my uh, invention at all. What it simply means is it's, it has to do with the fundamental laws and parameters of physics have been precise, uh, have precise numerical values that could have been otherwise, but they aren't. If you, take, if you take physics, the parameters of physics, you take the fundamental laws that we operate and function on and scientific functioning, you'll find that those numbers are, just, are, are specific. They're exact. There's no fundamental reason why those values have to be the way they are. And yet, all of those laws and constants agree with one another in a very mathematically incredible way to make the universe possible. It could have been any other arrangement or number of ways that things could have been arranged or put into place, but they're not. They are perfectly designed, perfectly in place. If you take the expansion of the universe, which is fine-tuned, they tell us now, and I don't understand all this, they tell us that the universe is fine-tuned to one the expansion rate, one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. I don't know what that means. But it sounds pretty intricate. They say if we were to change by one part in either direction, a little faster, a little slower expansion, that we couldn't have a universe that would be capable of supporting life. Anthropic fine-tuning. Sir Hoyle commented, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intelligent has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Physicist Paul Davies stated, the impression of design is overwhelming. When they speak of design, they're talking about there had to be a designer. This fine-tuning, this anthropic fine-tuning that takes place is just simply impossible to have just happened, is what they're getting at. 
Could our universe, our solar system, and life itself appear to be fine-tuned simply because it is? Could it be? I mean, as we look around us and as we note everything that's created and made, everything seems to have a designer. Why not the universe? Again, fine-tuning is powerful evidence for intelligent design. When we speak of intelligent design, we're talking about none other than God himself. Number three, let's consider the complexity and delicate balance that we find in the universe. In order to really appreciate the intricate and delicate design that exists, even in the most simplest forms, we need to know a little bit about those fundamental building blocks of the universe. Before you is one of those fundamental building blocks. Atoms. That is an atom. And again, maybe you learned a little bit about it in science class. You've probably forgotten all about it by now. But you did learn something about it. Atoms are incredibly small. Do you know that they're so small that they cannot even be seen with the human eye with the most powerful microscope available? Can't see them. They're that small. In fact, there's roughly, now get this, there is roughly 100 quadrillion atoms contained in the head of a pin. That's a one with 20 zeros behind it. They claim uh, the head of a pin now. 100 quadrillion atoms. Now that's mind-boggling, is it not? In this particular figure, you're going to see there's some neutrons, there's protons, and then there's those, those, they're in the middle. You see the P and the N's? Those are protons and neutrons, and they come together to create what's called the nucleus. Now you'll see E's around the outside, and they're, they're revolving or, or orbiting around the nucleus. Those are electrons, basic fundamental building blocks of atoms. Atoms build are the fundamental building blocks of all matter. Now here's an interesting thing. You know, we look at these things and we see them on a paper like that and we think, ah, it's no big deal. Look at it, obviously. But hold on. Do you realize, and this is interesting, do you, do you see if, if the protons and neutrons, and, and I can't even do this properly because, just picture this in a book, mind you. It's small, right? If, if the protons and neutrons were the size they are, the electrons would be orbiting one and a half miles away from the nucleus. So if, if, if you could see my paper, I have this little round thing here with this. It'd be a mile and a half from those little protons and neutro- neutrons. That electron rotates around. You say, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, how does, that, well, how does that translate? Give me something that I can wrap my mind around? Well, let me do that then. If you would take the songbook that you hold every Sunday morning, and you'd hold it in your hand, what you are holding in your hand is about 99.9999999999997 empty space. Now that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's empty space. 9D9 point, and literally now, there's like 12 nines back there and a 7. Empty space. The issue is, is that there's so many of them, though, and they bind together and they're so small that you feel matter. 
instead of just literally slipping through air. And yet, that book is over 99.9% uh, air. Now, that's amazing to me. Every atom has a specific number of protons, neutrons, and electrons. This particular one here is, is actually a helium atom. But if you would change that, and, and you would turn around and say you would have six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons, then all of a sudden you'd have a carbon atom. Every atom has a different disposition or, or, or a different, uh, a different uh, number of electrons, neutrons, and protons. Now again, those atoms bond together to make life-giving chemicals. Things then become even more complex after that. We could note proteins. We can note there are many pieces and parts. We could talk about cells and even DNA. You've heard of that. That DNA helps to describe and, and direct a cell so that it produces what it's supposed to. So the different proteins line up and all those things. I can't tell you how infinitely more complex these issues are than even anyone can imagine. And yet, they have simply came into being. Richard Dawkins of Oxford says that, quote, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. You know computers uh, run on software programs that are often, well, always, I should say, produced by intelligent engineers. Doesn't it stand to reason that DNA, proteins, and atoms are equally programmed by a heavenly designer? I mean, every experience that we have about information, whether it's information uh, brought about through a computer code or maybe even hieroglyphics that are inscribed on walls, books, cave paintings, it doesn't matter what it is. It points to what? Intelligence. And the same is true about information inside every cell and every living creature. It points to intelligent design. It didn't just happen. How'd that just happen? A big bang and all of a sudden things fell into place, perfectly aligning themselves. It doesn't happen that way, folks. Let me give you a few more things. Maybe let's go to a little bit broader spectrum, things that we can really kind of wrap our mind around. We'll expand our search from complexity and, and, and delicate balance from those small building blocks. To, and we'll just talk about the earth here for a minute. Now, again... The earth is a very interesting thing, but we're going to talk a little bit more now about how some things that could upset life on earth. For instance, think about the earth's orbit for a minute. And again, here you're seeing the orbit. It's kind of hard to see, but it's a little red line there. Oh, wait a second. Let me use my new trusty little toy. See? See it there? That's right. Got rid of that thing that wasn't flipping. Got me a new one. Anyway, you see its orbit. And the earth, of course, orbits around the sun in nearly, a very nearly circular pattern. It's very circular. It stays at almost a constant distance away from the sun. If that distance were to change by even as little as 2%, there would be disastrous consequences. In order for life as we know it to exist, the water on the planet must be, uh, remain a stable, uh, excuse me, must be stable in its liquid phase. You know, you see oceans, you see um, lakes and rivers. Uh, that's a liquid phase, opposed to maybe solid phase like the polar caps that are ice or even a vapor. If the earth were 2% further away from or closer to the sun, 
There would not be enough liquid water on the planet to support any kind of life at all. Think about the Earth's axis for a minute. You know how the Earth tilts slightly? Again, in the, the, the picture, you can see that the, the Earth is tilted slightly. It's at an angle there. The Earth not only orbits around the sun, as we noted, but it also rotates on its own vertical axis. What happens is, is that that, that, that tilt enables the sun to have the maximum, uh, cover the maximum amount of, uh, of space on the Earth. If that earth wasn't tilted, if it was straight up and down, the earth wouldn't receive enough sunlight. Therefore, the larger portion of the earth is always covered by the sun. And if that didn't happen, then basically we would either freeze to death or we would burn up. It would be too, ex- too extreme to support life. The temperatures would be too hot, too cold. It wouldn't work. You think about the rotation. It's 24 hours, right? The earth spins. The speed in which the earth spins is very important. It takes 24 hours for the earth to make one full rotation on its axis. And of course, that's why there's a 24-hour day. If the earth's rotation were significantly faster, then the winds on the planet would regularly reach hurricane velocity. If instead the rotation of the speed of the earth were significantly slower, then the difference between daytime and nighttime temperatures, again, would be too extreme to support life. Also, there's a magnetic field that takes, that the earth has a magnetic field. Now, you take a Boy Scout or somebody in the military, they'll use a compass. And they're able to chart their course with a compass. Well, that's because the earth has a magnetic field. But it's also absolutely necessary for life as we know it. The earth is constantly being bombarded by cosmic radiation. That radiation is not blocked by the ozone layer. This particular radiation isn't. It'd be deadly to life. If we were exposed to it, we could not function, nor could we live. It's that magnetic field that keeps those harmful particles away from the surface of the earth and allows life to exist. Now, how'd that happen? It just happened. Are you getting the picture? I mean, Earth is a very incredibly complex system of interacting processes. And they all work together to make the planet a haven for life. Do you realize if, if the planet was not located in the solar system where it is, more than likely it would not exist either? I mean, there's all kinds of intricate and very important balances that the earth and life itself must maintain or they would not exist at all. That's kind of how we live our lives sometimes, isn't it? Hugh Ross has listed additional, an additional 24 features which allows the earth to support life in his book. He wrote the book, The Creator in the Cosmos. Using those facts that he came up with, Dr. Ross conservatively estimates that the probability of a planet like earth forming by chance is approximately one followed by 42 zeros. Once again... 
That's ridiculously, that's a ridiculously absurd probability, isn't it? That it would just happen, one in 42 zeros, uh, 42nd power. And you've heard about the probability of finding a needle in a haystack, haven't you? Well, this guy's looking for one. Let me try to put this in perspective. The bigger the haystack, the less likely you are to find the needle, right? If you were to cover the entire earth with hay and stack it all the way to the moon, you'd still be more likely to reach once into that haystack and pull out the needle than for the earth to have been formed by chance. The idea that the earth could simply exist as a result of blind chance is ludicrous at the least. So we've seen that the smallest, the most fundamental building blocks of life are perfectly designed to work with one another. We noted that each proton, neutron, electron, every atom and molecule fit together in a very delicately balanced, intricate web of interaction that forms the basis of life that we know and that we enjoy today. If just one of those fundamental building blocks were to be slightly different then life would abruptly cease to exist. Delicate balance. Complexity and delicate balance. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And don't tell me that God, you can't possibly imagine that this just came into existence when you consider the complexity and delicate balance. Oh, you can get on the internet and you can look up people who are trying to dismiss this thing called intelligent design. But it's very difficult in light of the information that's come to light over the last 50 years. And then, of course, we've already discussed it. We'll not spend much time on it. But number four, the Cambrian explosion. We already talked about that. But this does point... To intelligent design, it points to God. The fossil record has caused Darwin more grief than joy. Nothing distressed him more than the Cambrian explosion, the coincident appearance of almost all complex organic designs, Stephen Jay Gould. Dr. Stephen Myers said, Think about how suddenly these new body plans emerged. As one paleontologist said, What I want to know from my biology friends is just how fast does this evolution have to happen before they stop calling it evolution? Good question. Darwin said nature takes no sudden leaps, yet here's a huge leap, which is what intelligent agents cause. Consequently, the Cambrian explosion provides not just a negative case against Darwinian evolution, but also a compelling positive argument for design. Stephen Meyer. H. Smith of New York University writes concerning vertebrae. He says, the gap remains unbridged. The best place to start the evolution of the vertebrae is in the imagination. George Gaylord Simpson, a very uh, prominent evolutionary movement uh, member, says, this regular absence of traditional forms is not confined to mammals but is an almost universal phenomena as has long been noted by paleontologists. 
Again, the Cambrian explosion, we talked about it 540 million years ago. Of course, we know, and we'll learn a little bit later, possibly next week or the week after, that the flood had a lot to do with the dating problems that we recognize now. We'll talk about that more when we get into the fossil record. But Cambrian explosion points to God because all of a sudden, life forms that were completely formed begin to show up. No transitions prior to that. Finally, number five, human consciousness. Those are cool pictures, aren't they? It's one thing for life to spring forth from purely naturalistic means. I mean life. You know, they talk about the simplest cell. Well, as we saw, there's not very many, there's nothing simple about cells, no matter how simple they are. But nonetheless, for something to spring forth purely naturalistic is one thing. Although that is mathematically possible, it's not practically probable. But it is quite a different story for that life that evolved to exhibit some things. To exhibit emotion, feeling, reason, and awareness. We'd call that human consciousness. See, man is more than a concert of biological pieces and parts. He or she is a a collage of feelings and emotions that cannot be explained by the evolutionary process. Dr. Meyer again said, We have the capacity for self-reflection, for representational art, for language, for creativity. Science can't account for this kind of consciousness merely from the interaction of physical matter in the brain. Where did it come from? He says, again, I think theism provides the best explanation. Now again, these are issues that that point toward God, human consciousness. The fact that you can feel and think and and that you can express yourself. I mean, if it was simply just a biological function that took place that created life, how in the world did the mind become so so complex? How did it ultimately be able to harbor or to, to feel and think on its own? How'd that happen? There's only one answer. And they can go ahead and search for the answer all they want, and and you can read all kinds of scientific magazines and books, but in the end, I promise you, one day, you'll meet him. His name's God. God infused man with consciousness. Man became a living soul. Something very unique about man. There's a definite beginning to the universe. The anthropic fine-tuning that we see, the the complexity and delicate balance that we can't help but recognize, the Cambrian explosion and this human consciousness all point toward God. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, it says... For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
When we look at our world and we look at our universe, we look at our, our, the, 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 the nature around us, when we consider these aspects that we even discuss today, we can't help but come away with the idea, the thought, at least the possibility, there must be an intelligent designer. There must be a God. The personal stamp of an active creator. Not an impersonal, but a very personal creator. Designed these intricate and intimate systems. He was hands-on. He didn't just begin the evolutionary process and then leave his hands off and say, All right, man, figure it out on your own. He didn't do that. God was active in creation and God is active today in our lives and in our world now where we live. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds, having the, understand, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. May I say, as believers today, as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Don't do that. He says, do not walk having your understanding darkened. Do not go through life being alienated from the life of God. Do not for a moment even consider that evolution answers life's questions. That's ignorance. They do not understand. They do not see. They are walking in darkness. But you and I today that name the name of Christ know better, or should know better. We claim that we've, we received and accepted a Savior who died on Calvary 2,000 years ago. He came to wash our sin away, to remove that barrier that stood between us and God. Today we become not only the children of God, but heirs to eternity. Right. To a place called heaven. And as we review the facts, and as we look over science, how can we not review it, understanding and recognizing the very God that created all things? It saddens me and it burdens my heart to think for just a moment that possibly there are parents with children who have them in public schools and they come home and talk about evolution, and a mom or dad will not sit them down and say, hey, that stuff is malarkey, it's bull, it doesn't add up. Instead, we allow them to go through life believing somehow that some physiological thing took place, that somehow a big bang brought into existence a universe that had a beginning. Where did it come from? I want to move you and I want you to be motivated to say to your children on a regular basis, there is a God in heaven. There is a God that created all things. There is a God that we have to serve and bow down to. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Amen. We're looking for answers today. I mean, we're, we're looking for answers in today. Let me tell you, you've got a book that's called the Bible here. And in that book, it addresses the origin of life. 
It addresses the meaning of life, and it addresses the purpose for our existence. And so often we go through life neglecting that book and neglecting the Word of God, and we fail to truly comprehend, understand, and embrace those very important elements. If you don't understand what God's purpose is for your life, then you too are walking about lost. You might be saved today, you may have received Christ, but if you have not truly grasped the concept of purpose, God's purpose, my friend, you are wandering about aimlessly in life. And one day you'll stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat and He will say, what in the world did you do with the energy, the time, the ability I gave you? You have no answer. You have wasted it. But I'm telling you today that you don't have to go anywhere further than a book called the Bible to get the answers that you seek. And may we as parents and may we as leaders today stand up and not take a back seat to science or a back seat to some evolutionist. May we say to those that are around us, I believe there's a God in heaven. I believe there's a Bible He left us. And I've got the game plan right here. Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was, which is to come. He said, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He even says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Let me tell you something. There is nothing without Christ. There is no beginning. There is no end. He alone is first and last. Ephesians 2.12 says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Do you realize that that is the aim, the real goal of the evolutionist? Is to do away with God? That's all their goal is. He said, no, their real purpose is to to find the meaning of life, to find the real purpose of our existence, to understand how we came into being. No, their goal is to do without God. Because if their goal was to find truth, real truth, they would be open to another answer. They'd be willing to at least consider a three-letter word, God. But they won't and they don't as a whole. Science is not the enemy today. Science only continues to point us toward our Creator God. But do not allow yourself to be intimidated or to take a back seat to those who have yet to learn the truth. Creation is fact, not theory. And there is no hope without God in the world. I wonder today, do you have hope? The only way you have hope is if the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself, lives in you. I mean, has has there been a time, a place when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? 
When you took the Alpha and the Omega and said, you are the beginning, you are the end, and you are everything in between. I can't make it to heaven on my own. I don't have any way of pleasing you who is perfect and holy and without sin. I am just a wicked sinner, and I need my sin washed away. I wonder if you've come to that place in your life, and you finally looked to Jesus and said, He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. Because if you haven't, you need to today. And if you're a child of God, I hope that you understand that although it may seem that the world may be against us as God's people, God isn't. And everywhere you look, if you'll open your eyes, in spite of the the newsreels, in spite of what... I mean, if they can only find water on Mars, any similitude of water on Mars, it will prove evolution is true. Really? Will it really? Well, that's what they're going to tell you. Because water equals life to them. I'm going to tell you, there's much more at stake than just water. You, you need more than just water. Did you see the complexity of an atom? You recognize that proteins are made up of 20 different elements and they have to be in exact row, in exact, exact positions? I mean, the probability is inconceivable that they came into existence on their own. May I encourage you today to recognize there is a God in heaven. And that God left us a book called the Bible. And that Bible gives us not only the origin of life, but purpose and meaning today. Tie yourself to this book. Find yourself a good Bible preaching church and get in it, stay in it, serve in it. And let your family grow up in it. And not allow them to be duped and deceived by the world that will tell you there is no God and has no need for it, while all along having no hope. We've got hope today. Are you saved? you know Christ is your Savior? Have you received and accepted Him as Lord of your life? If you haven't, you need to. And if you're a child of God and you've allowed yourself to stray a little bit from the book, and you've started biting a little bit on the hooks that the world has le- left in the water for you, and you've started to believe in some of that junk, maybe even just a little of it. It's time we come to an altar. It's time we get in our seat where we're at and we say, God, forgive me for believing the lies. God, give me the faith that I need even now to believe your word and to trust in you only. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we've had to gather today. May you be glorified in this place, be magnified and exalted. Lord, there are those that need Christ in their life today. Possibly they sit in the pew today without Jesus, without hope. Because, Lord, if they're without you, they're without hope. And, Lord, in this world, it's a hopeless world we live in many times, especially as we grow older. So health begins to fail. Family begins to die off. As we see loved ones and friends go to heaven. God of heaven, we need hope today. And the only hope is you. Father, may those that are without Christ today that have yet to receive the Lord Jesus as Savior, may they, Father, find within their heart, feel within their heart, conviction, the need to have sin forgiven and to turn to Jesus Christ. Lord, may the believer today make a decision not to let themselves be influenced by the philosophies and ideologies of this present world. Well, God, help us to trust and to believe on Thee 
to hold your word as a rock, a foundation, and to stand upon it and to build our lives on it. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed.